You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Max. I'm glad to be here. I too am glad to be here with you guys. It means right, a lot. Fine, I'm glad to be here too. <laughs> you don't see it, man. I'll tell you who I was uh, recently here with, Michael Pollan. Oh, really? Came into the studio? Came right here. Came to you? Came into the studio. Wanted to talk about writing. Uh, he is on the tour for the Psychedelics book? Yeah, the paperback uh, edition of How to Change Your Mind is out. And uh, But we talked about the book, but we also talked about like uh, his whole career. Talked about the first article he ever wrote, leaving Harper's Magazine. He was the executive editor of Harper's Magazine. Did not know that. Left, moved his young family to Connecticut, started writing about gardening. Bold move. <laughs> yeah. Turns out, worked out for Michael Pollan. It seems to have paid off. Does he live in Berkeley? He lives in Berkeley. That is my hometown. Teaches at uh, the Berkeley J School, also teaches at Harvard. Had a lot of thoughts for the young journalists out there. And uh, finding your essential question. We talked about finding your essential question. It seems like, um, weirdly, if you succeed wildly in journalism, there's something about the journalist soul that uh, sends you to Berkeley. (laughs) Like, it seems like a lot of journalists are like, when I get the real, the big payout, I'm moving over there to Berkeley. You got Michael Lewis is over in Berkeley. Well, it's interesting that you bring it's that up. It's not a large town. You know, it's only a 100,000 person town. It's a lot of, it's a large concentration of writing talent. It is actually interesting that you bring that up because he really like, uh, we talked a lot about this, like, uh, what is your like essential question? Like, what's the thing that you're running at in your work? And he summed up Lewis's essential question better than I'd ever heard anyone do it. So stay tuned for that. Oh, wow. Max throwing tease curveballs left and right bang, here. Bang, 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 bang. Uh, uh, it's a good one. He was really fun to talk to. Uh, if you want to uh, just uh, tease uh, what you're doing, put that in the, the email newsletter. It's how to get people excited about your next project before it comes out or you know, right when it's about to come out. Put that in an email newsletter, Max. And you should do that with MailChimp. Their support makes this podcast possible. And now here's Max with Michael Pollan. What do you think about microdosing? I get asked that all the time. All right, no, I, I don't have much to say about it. It really, uh, it really made me um, want to do it. Yeah, that's a reaction a lot of people have. I think. Yeah. Um, 
And I totally understand if I read the book, I'd want to do it too. Yeah. I mean, the reason I started it was because I was talking to people who had had these big experiences, the cancer patients. Yeah. I began interviewing them for this piece I did for The New Yorker called The Trip Treatment. That was my first foray into this area. And I was listening to these stories that were so mind-blowing and transformative and atheists having spiritual experiences that I felt finally, I've got to do this. I, you know, I have to see what this is like. And, you know, for, to satisfy my own curiosity. But once I decided to do a book, I think it's kind of what my readers expect at this point because I, I do a lot of immersion journalism. Yeah. Um, you know, when I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a cow. I built a house to write about architecture. Um, I learned how to cook and baked when I was writing about that. So I think they kind of expect me to find that George Plimpton-esque first-person yeah. stance. A little participatory. But there's also like, I don't know, there feels like there's a slight like chicken and the egg thing in what you just said. It's like yeah. you wanted to do it, but also the people, had to do the it. people wanted I, it. it I didn't want to let them down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> up to me, I don't know, but... Well, remember, I did have, though, a lot of reluctance. I mean, I was deeply curious, but I was terrified uh, at the same time. And so the right excuse might have, uh, you know, I asked my cardiologist, is it okay if I do all these psychedelics? And, you know, he gave me the green light, uh, <laughs> except for MDMA. He, he said, don't do MDMA. Was well, there some part of you that was hoping you would say no? Mm, nah, but it, it was very reassuring that he yeah. was on board. So, yeah, I had my reluctance, but I was also, by that point, so intensely curious as to what this would be like. And I like writing that way. I mean, it really is a, you know, I mentioned George Plimpton. I read that when I was 13, uh, Paper Lion. My parents gave me a copy of Paper Lion. And I love that book. And I don't, you know, I wasn't a sports nut or anything, but he reinvented sports writing by putting himself on the field. And it wasn't just like, oh, here's a first person by someone who's actually doing it. You could have gotten that from uh, as told to book by a football player. But it's doing it for the first time mm -hmm. that gives you a kind of, sense of wonder or first sight that you'll never get again. And that even though Hamilton Morris is a much more experienced psychonaut, the edge I have over him... He, uh, he's been on the show. He's great. Oh, he has? Yeah. yeah. And uh, is that I'm doing it for the first time in the knowledge I'm going to write about it. And I see it with a certain kind of freshness that I'll never see it again. And that was... A, Plimpton got that too, because he was never going to do this twice. And he was a fish out of water. So he it gave him comic possibilities too. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that I was going to ask about that question, which is basically like part of Paper Lion is like, this is one of the most absurd people on the face of the earth to be playing quarterback <laughs> in the NFL. <laughs> yeah. This is like uh, preposterous. Right. And that's part of what makes it great. And And is that your experience of your... I, I don't know if it's preposterous for me, but it is, you know, the 60-year-old having his first psychedelic trip is kind of preposterous. <laughs> I mean, I didn't do this at the age-appropriate stage of life. Right. But, I mean, but even like raising cattle, like, do you feel like... I didn't quite raise it. I owned it. Other people raised it for me, luckily. I, right. It was never delivered to my doorstep. <laughs> it was it was in a lot that was going from a, a ranch to a feedlot to a slaughterhouse. The lone cow of the Berkeley Hills? Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, it didn't. Although, after I published the article about uh, steer number 534, there were people who in Beverly Hills who actually wanted to buy him from me at any price. I could name my price because they wanted to rescue him because I published the article before he was slaughtered. And this was a huge mistake because it brought out this outpouring of sympathy and that I was allowing him to die. And I remember there was a, a vegan uh, radio station 
I didn't know there was such a thing. I didn't think food figured into <laughs> your listening choices. <laughs> but uh, in New Jersey, and they organized a telethon to save 534. So anyway. It reminds me of that uh, Harvard Lampoon cover. like Yeah, by, no, it was the National Lampoon. Oh, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, buy this magazine or we'll shoot this dog. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, there's like, a, there's like a business there for you if you want. There, yeah, I, no, I could have done very well. But of course, I couldn't do that to the ranchers and pull them out of the lot and make a big show of it. So anyway, I didn't. But, you know, I just feel it gives me narrative to play with. I'm, I'm not a born storyteller. I'm not like Michael Lewis. I don't have that, or Jack Hitt. I don't have that Southern gift for storytelling that the narrative parts of my writing are the hardest for me. It's not the analytical part. It's not the gathering of information. It's finding a compelling story to knit a lot of what can be, you know, a lot of exposition because I'm in that piece, I'm trying to write about the whole cattle industry and the whole system and how it works and cattle feed and hormones and antibiotics and all this kind of stuff, which could be pretty dry. So what laundry line can you hang it on? And I work very hard to come up with that. And very often it's been my own uh, journey. Is it because you start with the ideas and then finding a story yeah. to match the ideas? I often do. I, it's, I know it's not the way you're supposed to do like, it. Like, so you just become a shortcut sort of? Yeah, you could put it that way. Um, <laughs> you could put it that way if you wanted to be no, insulting. I, I often think of subjects, not stories. And I always tell my students, I teach writing. I said, you know, a subject's not enough to sell an article. You need a story and a subject. And the story is the kind of, the subject is a landscape. Think of it that way. And the story is the path through the landscape. Mm-hmm. And for me, the path is really tough. And uh, so I've done this, you know, I've found a way to use myself to construct that path. You know, there are other ways to do it. But for me, that works really well. We never like actually started, but then we, we just oh, started anyway. Okay. Yeah, but that's true. The thing I was going to- You recording? Gonna, yeah, we've been recording the whole time. We're good. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to use all of this. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Max. <laughs> it's very good to be here. Um, the place where I actually want to start actually connects to all the stuff that you're talking about, though, which was, I read the book, and then I started going back and, and reading uh, older stuff. And you have a great personal website. Thank you. It's like, uh, it's very well maintained and it has an incredible like uh, archive of your stuff. Everything. Just about everything I've written is on there. So yeah. I went back, I found the, like the, I read the first thing, which is about uh, the, the like woodchuck in your, in oh, your wow. garden. Oh wow, yeah, that was a New York Times essay. Yeah, 19... 19- Nature abhors a garden, I think it was called. Yeah. <laughs> 1988. Yeah. And uh, you figure quite prominently in that one too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I got in a war with a woodchuck. That was kind of a key moment for me in my writing. You know, I was in graduate school in English. I was studying English, but really American studies. And my passion was understanding the peculiar attitudes Americans have toward nature, that we worship it and desecrate it at the same time, that we have this very religious understanding of the the landscape. And your plan was to be an academic? Yeah, I was going to be an English professor. And um, I did a master's thesis on Thoreau and another one on Melville. And and I love that whole area of American culture because we have a very unique attitude. You know, when we came to America, we conceived of it as uh, the Puritans called it this, God's second book. You could read the landscape. And this was our chosen land. We were chosen to be here and ignoring the fact that there was people here already. And this virgin wilderness was ours, and it was God's landscape. And we've always had this religious tint to our thinkings about nature, which hasn't gotten in the way of, you know, exploiting it terribly. Um, And there were ways we allowed ourselves to do that. So that was my subject. And, um, And then I started gardening. 
in a pretty serious way. I was working as a magazine editor at Harper's Magazine. And I didn't like living in New York at the time. We had a kind of cruddy apartment in the Upper West Side, and we cobbled together money to buy this, like, rundown house in Cornwall, Connecticut, about two hours away. And we'd go there every weekend. And my wife was painting, so I had to find something to do. So I started gardening. And I had gardened as a kid. I mean, I loved gardening. Even as an eight-year-old, I had what I called a farm next to the foundation of our house in the suburbs. And... uh Anytime I could grow three or four strawberries, I'd put them in a Dixie cup and sell it to my mother. So it was a, it was a real farm. And um, so I started gardening and ran into problems immediately that I chronicled in that piece, which was I had this very romantic Thoreauvian idea of nature that we could be on intimate terms with it, that there was no conflict in this relationship. And that fences, for example, were very English, very old world. Right. Thoreau hated fences. Emerson hated fences. And that, you know, they looked on the on the weeds and the garden plants all with this benign regard. And um, of course it's ridiculous. You can't <laughs> you can't grow anything that way. So I put in this garden and had no fence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I double dug these rows and did everything you're supposed to do. And I put out the I went and got these seedlings and they were mowed down within one day. I went out there and they just neatly clipped off every single one of my it was broccoli seedlings. And I got into this war with this woodchuck that kind of became my horticultural Vietnam. Yeah, it escalated. It did escalate. It got. I, I did some things I'm not proud of and that people are surprised to hear I did. But so anyway, it, it went through a series of steps. And the first step was, you know, using my superior brain, figure out what kind of animal it was, what its vulnerability was. I figured out it wasn't a deer. It was a woodchuck. It had to be a woodchuck. And I did some reading, and I knew the burrow had to be just a few steps away because woodchucks are virtually blind. They don't travel that far for food. So I found the hole. You know, I stuffed it full of dirt and um, thinking I had solved my problems. And then I came back the next weekend. This was a weekend house. And, like, the earth had spit the rocks and dirt (laughs) out. He'd come out and wiped out another row. And then I started uh, learning about woodchuck hygiene practices and that they really like to keep their belly fur clean and so I started pouring stuff down the hall that would really offend them you know some creosote yeah. molasses and motor oil really, yeah motor, motor oil <laughs> and uh, and thinking that would discourage him and it did discourage him from that hole but he dug another hole around it they always have a back door <laughs> I finally uh, well I did two stupid things one was I, w- I decided I would intimidate him and I found some uh, flattened woodchuck on the road, and I scooped it up onto a piece of cardboard, drove it home, and stuffed it into the new hole. <laughs> just to, just for, uh, for so you know, that's the point in the story where I feel like it, things start to turn for me as a reader. Turn to what? Well, just it, the, things got Turtle. a little dark all of a sudden. <laughs> it got very yeah, dark. I didn't, I didn't see the. Uh... It got very dark. It wasn't funny at this point. You know, I felt that this was these were my rows of vegetables, and he was not entitled to it. And, you know, it was sort of like the horse head in the bed in The Godfather. I, I, yeah. That's what I pictured. That didn't work. He he came out, did more damage. And then I did the thing I'm really not proud of, which is um, I had seen this piece of video on the news that they were, um, the FAA was trying to develop a new fuel that would be less explosive in an airplane accident when it hit the runway. And they had mocked up this old 727 on a, remote airfield and they'd ignited this fire and they set up a camera to see how fast the fire would like shoot down this tube it didn't work actually this new fuel they, they hoped it'd be quite slow it was like <laughs> boom 
And I thought, that's exactly what I want to happen Perfect. to my woodchuck. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a gallon of, I don't know if it was gasoline or kerosene, and poured it down the hole and waited for it to fan out into because I knew it had a bedroom and a latrine and a food room and everything. And then I threw a match in there. Now remember, I was an English major, not a physics major. Had I been a physics major, I would have known that flames really like oxygen and they don't move where there is no oxygen. <laughs> so the flames just shot out of the earth and like almost got me. And I was thrown back by the force <laughs> of this. I mean, just imagine a fountain of flame coming out of this. And that's when I realized two things. One is, this is really fucked up. This is not how to get along with nature. <laughs> and gee, it's kind of typical of our species and our sense of entitlement and our sense that our superior firepower, such as pesticides and tractors and all this kind of stuff, should win the day. And lastly, that there was a place to write about nature in the garden, um, my misadventures, mm -hmm. that might be more revealing and more helpful, perhaps, than going to the wilderness where American nature writers go. So Helpful to who? Helpful to the culture. Because, you know, we need to rethink our engagement with the natural world. It's completely pathological at this point, right? We're destroying ourselves and it. You know, I, I started that book, Second Nature. It was like when we were first hearing about climate change. It was 1989, I finished it. And that's when we had, 88, we had the testimony from... Uh, Hansen and 89, we had Bill McKibben's book. And uh, so I, I realized in the same way I was going to write about nature in the work of Thoreau and Emerson, it might be more interesting actually to write about it right here in my garden and um, see if I can't think through in a, a different environmental ethic and all that kind of stuff. So that was, that's a very long answer to your question about that piece, but it was pivotal. That piece was really pivotal. Well, I, I got some questions now about it uh, being pivotal, but. It's striking to me the details that you remember from that story. How do you remember that so well? <laughs> the only thing I really remember well in life are things I've written. Like, could you have done that with anything I could have pulled out of that 50-story archive on your website? No, probably not. That story, because it really was a turning point, is where I found my... I found a way to tie my academic interests to my journalistic interests or my literary interests. And so... When I give talks about writing, there's one talk I do occasionally, which is just kind of my path from mm -hmm. the garden to the plate to yeah. psychedelics, and where I read short excerpts from four or five different pieces and talk about the line, and, and that is a piece I read from. Well, that's why I wanted to start. I mean, you could just give me your talk. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> help me understand the line, because one of the things that was striking for me reading it was... I mean, I literally like finished the book and then not very shortly thereafter read that story. And did it seem like the same guy? Yeah. How like, many years is that? 80, what did you say? 30, 88? 31? Yes, 30 years. Yes. Like it seemed like um, kind of like the exact same guy. Like the 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 writing is really similar, mm -hmm. and I mean, there's like that's got a little bit more like Caddyshack to it than, than the book does. But like, <laughs> there's a lot of Caddyshack in that piece. But, yeah, but uh, it felt really similar, and and the ideas. I mean, basically, what you you were just able to articulate came through too, and yeah, I don't know, man. Walk me through that line. Well, I, like, I how... do. I love ideas. I really do. I'm, I and a lot of journalists are allergic to ideas, and that's to their credit in many ways. I mean, that makes them better reporters. They're like it's all about facts and information and but perhaps because of this academic training, I'm very drawn to ideas and abstractions, and so my challenge is giving them flesh as a writer, and that's, you know, what I work on the hardest. I mean, I work hard on the ideas to figure out what I think and um but 
yeah, so that piece kind of set me on my path. And I didn't know it at the time, but questions about nature are my final questions. You know, those are the questions that if you scratch my work, you end up there. Mm -hmm. And I think all writers, after they've written a few books, have a set of final questions. Everything Michael Lewis writes comes back to success, right? Defined either in sports terms or monetary terms and how, how unlikely people achieve it. And for some people, it's love or eros or power. Um, that's another, you know, huge. That motivates lots of journalists, investigative reporters in particular. It's something you don't learn until you've written your second or third book. Mm -hmm. And for me, it came in the second book. Um, so I thought I'd written this book about nature and the garden, and I was done. And I want to write about something different. So I thought I'd write about architecture and design and different subject. I was curious to learn about it. We were renovating a house, uh, this house in Connecticut, you know, trying to take it from dump to less of a dump. And... Um, and I start writing this book, and it was my most troubled experience as a writer getting this book written. I, I had a total false start. I did about 100 pages and realized this is all wrong. What was wrong about it? I was writing about our house renovation and using that as the model, but as a character, I was just a check writer and, yeah. and a worrier. You know, <laughs> it just wasn't a great role. <laughs> and I had this idea in the back of my head that I needed to get more intimately involved. And I was going to write a coda to this book, a last chapter that would be the building of this writing house. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized, oh, that actually is the whole book. I should make that microcosm the center of the book. But I had gone way down this road. And in fact, that mistake is what forced me to give up my editing job. I was an editor at Harper's when I started my career. Yeah. And I learned to write to a large extent, working with really good writers at Harper's and really bad writers. And... Um, and started writing kind of moonlighting while I was there and, and wrote Second Nature nights and weekends and took a short leave of absence. Then I get this contract, you know, for decent money to write this book on architecture from the same editor who I've worked with my whole career. I've only had one editor. And I realized, oh, this is all wrong. I have to start again. But now I'm in the hole financially because, you know, the advances are going to last forever. And, and that's when I reached this fork in the road. I also couldn't write at night and weekend we had a kid now and that changes everything you don't want to write on the weekends you don't and you don't have the energy at night to write um and uh so i had to decide do i stay at harper's in the hopes of one day becoming the editor-in-chief because i was the number two or do i take the leap and write full time and uh obviously i took the leap and was it a hard choice it was a hard choice financially because it meant you know giving up health insurance and a job and we also left new york so we could live more cheaply because the key to being a successful freelancer is having a low mo monthly nut <laughs> and we could send our kid to a public school and we could live very cheaply in the country and uh, so we pulled up stakes and, and moved to the country and and I'm so I'm struggling through this book even when I get the start right I realize God you keep coming back to these issues about nature uh, what do they have to do with architecture I was really interested in like the wood and the trees and how they get turned into lumber and I was really interested in it was a time of high theory in architecture then. It was Peter Eisenman was the presiding, you know, genius. And uh, they discovered literary theory. And they were treating buildings as if they were poems, which is to say completely arbitrary. You could do anything you want. There were no rules. It was a cultural product as pure as a poem, which is 
insane by the way <laughs> they have to stand up i mean you know they have to keep the rain out they, <laughs> right. there are certain exigencies that poems simply don't have to deal with they don't even films don't even have to make sense um <laughs> buildings have to do certain things and uh so i was really interested in this question of to what extent does nature dictate the way we build obviously there's a lot of freedom look at all the kinds of architecture they're around but gravity the size of the human body how space feels you know things that Frank Lloyd Wright understood about going from a low space to a high space and how that's exultant and, and that's all a function of body and space. And I felt like, God, am I repeating myself? I, I'm going back to these nature questions. Mm -hmm. And that's the anxiety of the second book. I think second books are harder to write than first books. You were worried about like getting uh, pigeonholed as the yeah. nature guy? or No, or that I'm repeating myself. You know, that's also a horror for writers. God, you're repeating yourself. And then I realized, no, I'm not repeating myself. This is what I'm passionate about. And I'm writing about nature from this whole other area. And I finally kind of let go. Mm -hmm. But that book has various scars in it. Of uh, How do you, how does that letting go happen? Like, what does that actually look like? Is it like a slow process? Uh, no, it's kind it, of a sudden embrace. Um, yeah. You know, the way I put it in that book, which by the way, wasn't very successful. It was my least successful book by far, was that your first book is like a point in space and anything could happen and the second book forms a line and that's a trajectory and that changes everything mm -hmm. and i forget what a third point does but uh <laughs> it makes it very stable structure or fairly stable structure so no i just kind of like said oh yeah this is your thing and you can write about nature from a lot of points of view and it was kind of liberating to decide that and and i think that liberation is reflected in the next book botany of desire which is kind of an a exultant book in many ways and it was the most fun i think i've had as a writer uh, was there um like career strategy in that decision or was it just like there's maybe a path here where i can follow my genuine curiosity and that works out no the only <laughs> the only career the only cynical moment was when i wrote second nature first book small very exciting i get invited to um my first speaking invitation as a writer was to the fort worth garden club and i went down there and spent the night and then gave the lunchtime talk the next day and i looked out on my audience and there were like all these blue-haired old ladies and i was like i can't build a career on them <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna have to expand beyond this garden crowd they're not gonna be their longevity is nothing i can count on it turned out and i worked so hard on that talk i talked about weeds and they politely clap, but what they really wanted me there for was to judge the flower arrangements. <laughs> and because they don't trust any of themselves to do it because they're so fiercely competitive. Right, right, right. They need an outsider. And that's what they paid speakers to do. And I didn't know how to judge a flower arrangement. I, I kind of told them what I liked. But anyway, so that was a career move, like get out of gardening, even though I continue to garden and I'm passionate about it. But um, no, I, I didn't see it that way. In some ways, each book kind of points a direction. Mm. Hopefully, like Botany and Desire, which kind of grew out of my embrace that, oh, I'm really interested in nature. And I found a new way to write about there. And the fourth chapter of that was about agriculture and how we use, you know, domesticated food plants to um, control our fate, you know, in many ways, and how they use us too to get us the edible grasses are some of the most successful plants that ever lived and they have gotten us to deforest the planet and uh, give them huge amounts of habitat and they're very clever and uh, they could never defeat the trees without our help um, but we've done that but that last chapter pointed me to oh food wow 
if you want to write about nature and the human engagement with the natural world, the food system is how we change nature more than anything else we do. Mm-hmm. If you think about the composition of species on the planet, if you think about you know why there's so many cattle and so few wolves, it's because we eat cattle and wolves also eat cattle. They're competitors. The landscape obviously transformed by agriculture, and now we understand the climate too is completely transformed by agriculture. It's a, a tremendous contributor to climate change. So that set me on a path that lasted for three or four books, uh, writing about food. Does it feel to you, looking back on it, like as straight a line as you just described it? It didn't at the time. I I don't think you ever know when you're going. I mean, I often, you know, when I talk to students and about career and stuff like that, nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, really. (laughs) And don't stress about it because there are very few straight lines. You know, you work in this medium that didn't exist 10 years ago, you know. I mean, there's going to be other media that don't exist now that we may be working in. Um, So I think you have to develop your skills, whether it's storytelling or whatever it is, but at a high level of generality because the modes of storytelling will change and the stories will change, obviously. So... No, I, it was not a really a straight line. Um, and I've been very fortunate, too, in that I've had an editor, uh, Ann Godoff is my editor, who has been happy to change, you know, let me change the way I wanted to change. And just she kind of acts on faith that I won't make a terrible decision or <laughs> she'll, maybe she'll stop me from a terrible decision about what to write about. Have um, you, have you uh, gone down some, like, terrible idea called the sex? Oh, yeah. I've had some bad ones. And, you know, I've been rescued. Sometimes it's my agent who rescues me. She, I have the bluntest agent in New York, Amanda Urban, Binky. And uh, I remember sending her a book proposal once after my second book. So it was an important time because I had just blown in advance and lost money for right, a publisher. Now, now you're uh, creating a, a structure on, in space. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had an idea. I won't even tell you what the idea oh, was. Oh, you have to tell me the idea. <laughs> I had written this piece for the New York Times Magazine about Celebration Florida, which was Disney's first planned community. And I thought it was like such a preview of fascism. And I spent time there and I thought, wow, it'd be really interesting to spend a year there, bring my family down and see what it's like to live in a place designed as a fantasy. And um, so I wrote this proposal and uh, Binky, when she calls you, she doesn't announce herself. You're supposed to know it's Binky. And uh, I pick up the phone and I hear, boring, 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 (laughs) three times. (laughs) So I knew there was a problem with that one. (laughs) So yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of bad ideas. How do you know, uh, how do you know when it's a good one? Like, I'm interested in, in your process for how you pick a project and how you sort of like decide, all right, this is one that I'm Mm going to spend X number of years of my life. It's a really momentous decision. Uh, it's the most important decision you make, you know, outside of I'm going to have a kid, going to get married, you know. I mean, it's like you're investing three or four years of your life or five years of your life. And so I have found the best way for me is to write an article on the subject as a kind of trial balloon. And I've done that a couple times. I mean, in a way, Power Steer, the one about buying the the animal and following it through the process, was the kind of trial run for Omnivore's Dilemma. I did a couple pieces for the New York Times Magazine around food, and those ended up becoming chapters in that book. And the current book began as an article in The New Yorker. And that gives you a chance 
to test an idea. And, and the most important thing is, does it have enough dimension or diversity in it to keep you interested? And I mean, to me, the fault with a lot of nonfiction books is that I ask myself, why isn't this an article? Mm-hmm. It could be an article and it feels blown up. I'm looking for a topic that demands that it be treated from several different perspectives. So in this book, and this was true of Omnivore too, there was history, there was science, there was personal experience, and it has dimensions, and it needs dimensions. You can't tell, because I realized when I did the New Yorker piece, I was telling it from a pretty narrow science writing dimension, but without any personal experience, without much history at all, and the history was fascinating. You know, so there are two kinds of articles. One where you finish it, and you go, I am so sick of this topic. I'm never going near this again. Oh, good. I've, I've got it out of my system. And then the other is, wow, I've just scratched the surface. This is really rich. And so I wrote three articles between Cooked and the decision to write this book. One was on the microbiome, which I got really interested in. But I realized, talking to scientists, that everything was going to change within five years. So it would be impossible not to write a dated book or a book that would get dated very quickly. And I didn't want to do that. And then the other was a piece on plant intelligence, which I found a fascinating topic, really exploring the ideas of how plants communicate with one another and um, and how all the trees in a forest are linked and through this underground network of mycelium. And it was fascinating stuff, but it seemed a little thin. It, maybe it wasn't. I mean, uh, Richard Powers wrote a whole novel, a brilliant novel about this. Like um, the science seemed thin or the story seemed thin? It just seemed a little fringy mm-hmm. still. It just didn't seem quite ripe. But I liked it. What would I, don't know, been... I might go back to it at some point. I don't know. Well, I should also say, like, that's all over the Woodchuck article, too. Yeah. There's a whole section on how plants talk to each other. And, <laughs> See, I forgot that. I forgot that. I mean, but... I guess I know I'm like harping on this in probably an unhelpful way, but I find that really striking that you were like one of the books that I was going to write 25 years, 26 years after that article. Like, yeah, actually, was in that. Yeah. Oh, listen, it's worse than that. I had this time. I recently did an audio book of Second Nature because it came out in 91. I think it's 91. Yeah. Before there were audio books. And so audible or somebody asked me if i would record a, an audiobook of it and, and i hadn't read it and you, you don't go back and read your books i mean maybe there's a point in your life when you do but the idea fills me with nah new things to read <laughs> i don't want to read that but i had to read it and i went back and read it and i was like i don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing but i have not had a new idea since 1991 <laughs> <laughs> they're all in there in some germinal form that i don't necessarily recognize they're all there, well, it's including the psychedelic stuff. Right. So, uh, you know, if Lewis's question is around success and yours is around nature, it just feels, I don't know, significant to me that the first article on your website, mm-hmm. you'd been writing and editing at Harper's and all this stuff, but like the first thing in your archive is basically that question. Yeah. In a pretty distilled way. I know. Maybe I could have stopped. <laughs> But it's all been, a, you know, opening it up. I mean, you know, right. unfurling it. I mean, the, you know, we have ideas in, in different forms. Sometimes they're really in the seed. And there's a lot of seeds in that book. And, you know, this is classically what's said about first novels, you know, that, that people put everything they know in them. 
And you think, like, this might be my last chance. I didn't know I was going to be a writer. I was moonlighting as an editor. I didn't think it was realistic to make a living as a writer. And so everything I had thought about nature was in there. And I realize now, you know, as I reread it, it was like there were so many... um, you know, beginnings there. Yeah. So maybe I should go back and I'll find my next book in there. <laughs> well, either that or you were really fortunate to find the question. Yeah, maybe I was. I mean, yeah, because it can take a lot longer to find it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, so the third article I wrote after Cooked was uh, The Trip oh, Treatment. Right, yeah. And that's when I realized this is rich enough. This needs, and it needs a first person. It needs history. It needs science. And I knew I had a book. And I didn't, I didn't even write a proposal. I just sent the draft to Anne and she said, yes, go. And um, so that was very exciting. So for me, that's the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also know, you know what you're going to get to read. I mean, for me, one of the most exciting things about a book or an article is the reading list I make at the beginning. Oh, I get to read this and this and this and this. And I make my students do that too. I want to see like five books you're going to read to write that article. And a lot of journalists are allergic to reading whole books. God forbid we read clips, you know. <laughs> So I see what I'm going to read, and then I'm going to see who who I get to hang out with. Like, what kind of people are those? And I realized these researchers doing psychedelics were really quirky scientists. Yeah. And in many ways, I mean, one of the leading characters in the book had had a mystical experience in Hindu meditation that made him want to study this. And then you, where do you get to go? You know, so all the kind of practicalities of it, you get to try it out. And some stories you realize, I don't want to hang out with those guys. (laughs) Or... Or they already hate me because of the article I published. That right, happens too. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that was one thing I was wondering about with this book. Was two things. One was there, there's quite a few moments in the book where you have this caveat that basically says, like, listen, I know this all could sound pretty like out there, but just stick with me here for a second. Yeah. And I wondered whether that gave you pause as you were deciding to do it, like whether people were going to be able to take that idea seriously. But then I was also thinking as you introduce these characters and you go into these conferences and getting into that world, like how psyched they must have been. Mm. They're just like, Michael Pollan's going to write about this shit. (laughs) This is amazing. That's like, that's a huge moment for them, right? Yeah, I guess for some of them. I mean, I did hear from a lot of people in the community, like you're going to do for psychedelics what you did for food. I said, are you crazy? (laughs) I didn't say it. I thought it. It seemed like so implausible, although it's happened to a, more of an extent than I ever thought possible. Yeah. I mean, in terms of mainstreaming, what was a very fringy thing. I guess that's what I mean. Is like, was there any math around that for you, how fringy it was? Well, there was a worry that, you know, there is this nostrum in book publishing that drug books don't sell. And it's hard to find examples, except for maybe Carlos Castaneda, of, you know, drug books that were really successful and Drugs are just so charged, and they're and just the word drugs to so many people, especially young parents, has such a negative valence. And so there was that out there. And that's one of the reasons it has that ridiculously long subtitle is to make clear to people you're going to learn about other things. You're going to learn about consciousness. I don't, I can't even remember it. Um, here, you should read it. We got, I yeah. want the book on the table here. Uh, what the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Surely someone's interested in one of those things. <laughs> but psychedelics is not just a subject, it's a window. Yeah. And hence that, that I really wanted to convey that on the cover very quickly. Um, so there was that worry. Um, 
But I knew I had a really good topic here by the tail. I, I had, this was not a book where I had moments of like, is anyone going to care? I mean, it might have been a small group, but mm-hmm. I was so excited by what I was learning. I don't think I've been as excited uh, doing research. And it was all new, too. I, was, I knew nothing about brain science. I never took a psychology course. And I hadn't used psychedelics. So it was so new. And some of that was a deliberate decision that... I realized, having written three or four books about food, that it was very hard for me to write as a naïve anymore. I knew too much. I was too much of an expert. And I don't like writing as an expert. I I learned that, I guess. And that I'm fine doing public speeches as an expert or maybe writing op-ed pieces as an expert, all that kind of stuff. But as a writer, it's a killer. Nobody likes an expert. Nobody likes to be lectured at. And if you read anything I've written, I'm kind of an idiot on page one. Well, there's like a paper lion thing. Yeah, that's right. I, I am the naive. I am the fish out of water. You're the guy pouring gasoline down a Yeah, <laughs> a doing really stupid things. And I'm learning, though. And so the narrative we always have as a writer is our own education in the topic. And we can recreate the process of learning that is behind the book. I'm surprised so many writers don't do that and that having become an expert by the time you finish the research page one they're telling us what to think you know it's like telling a joke you don't start with the punchline right you lead to it and in a way it's a little bit coy because you're hiding from the reader things you know on page one but i think it's completely defensible all stories begin that way and all jokes begin that way so i realized i think i have to get out of food and wouldn't it be great to be able to write about something I genuinely don't know and I'm learning. And I would at least have that narrative of my own education. When you're uh, putting yourself forward like that, when you're using your own sort of like journey and learning to tell the story, how big a gap is there between like uh, you on the page and you in real life? Oh, well, everything I say I did, I did. I mean, I, you know, even a memoir you need to fact check, even though it's hard to do. But one of the things that's really surprised me about writing is that, you know, you said that I have the same, you know, it's the same person who wrote that first piece and this piece. And yeah, in some ways, but I think you have to reconstruct your first person every book. Because the first person that wrote the gardening book is not the first person who wrote this book. I mean, or the food books. So it's weird. It's the most constructed thing in a piece of writing. A first person nonfiction is the first person. And Wait, the, sorry, what do you mean by that? Well, it's not a given. You choose, you, your personality has so many elements and you don't use all of them. You pick a few. I'm a meat eater. I'm a 60-year-old guy trying to answer some spiritual questions. I'm a gardener trying to grow broccoli without some damn woodchuck <laughs> stealing it. Um, so some facts about you are irrelevant to that story. So... There's no, you know, if you write in a kind of a generic first person, like the feature writers do sometimes in newspapers, it's like, who is that person? It's a journalist. Oh, that's not a very interesting person. So you have to take out of the whole grab bag of what you are. You know, are you a son? Are you uh, a father? Are you, I mean, all these dimensions. And you have to, you cobble together a first person that consists of several of them. But they have to be the relevant ones. And they're all true yet you get to choose. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean when I say it's constructed. And so I tell my students, like, okay, one big decision is, are you going to write in the first person or not? It's a key decision in any piece of writing. 
And then the next question, if the answer was yes, is which first person? And that starts a whole other train of facts. And, you know, it's funny. I write in the first person all the time, but I actually don't reveal that much of myself. I mean, this is the most personal book. It's usually, The first person to me is a device. It's a literary device. It's a way to allow you to go here and there. And so mine is a kind of a, it's not the most revealing. It's not a confessional first person. What was the experience like of, uh, of maybe confessing a little bit more in this book? You know, this is going to sound glib, but the psychedelics made me do it. I mean, you have an experience that is so profound and, and kind of opening. I mean, your defenses are down, literally. I mean, your your ego is softened or made more permeable or in one or two cases in, during my trips disappeared completely. I mean, I had this experience of complete ego dissolution. So your usual defensive moves, like I don't want to share this with anybody, are, you're really at a, you're in a different place. And so it actually becomes easier to talk more personally when it was relevant. And you mentioned earlier about that talking to the audience about, you know, I know this sounds crazy. And that was a big moment when I realized how to do that as a writer. Because the big challenge in this book was how do you tell a psychedelic trip that doesn't sound like somebody at a party telling you their dreams? Yeah, how do you do it? Which is a nightmare to me. I just run, I want to run. It's very rare a dream is interesting to anybody but the dreamer. And in my case, not even the dreamer because I have the most boring dreams. Um, you know I, I have to ask you about your dreams, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're so not memorable. I can't. Two nights ago, I dreamt I was picking out a flannel shirt. <laughs> and should I go with the yellow or the plaid? <laughs> okay. Is that boring? <laughs> it's really boring. I told you I had a trouble with narrative. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I, I knew I'm not, I'm not writing for the community, the psychedelic community. I'm writing for probably a majority of readers who've never had this experience. So how I describe it's very important to the book. And it was this looming mountain that I had to get over, you know, chapter four, whatever it is. And I, you know, the reporting of it was complicated too, because I couldn't take notes during the experiences like the last thing I wanted to do. I told my guides to write down anything I said, but it was so banal. It was like spectacular. (laughs) Or or once I said, I don't want to be so stingy with my feelings. You know, things like that. And uh, so that was no good. But after the experience, I did two things. One was I sat down with Judith, my wife. We would have a meal together. And I'd tell her everything that happened. And she was very, since she knows me so well, she was very good about connecting the dots. Well, this is about your dad or this is this, you know, this means that maybe. And then I I went to my office and wrote 20 single-space pages about everything I could remember. And you can remember everything. Did you do that the next day? No, that night. That night. That, That night. And then the next day I went back to the guide and told them the story. So I had this kind of undigested bolus of words, you know, about my psychedelic experience with images and scenes and feelings. And, but I didn't know whether to write it from inside the experience, deep inside, where, I, where the logic would be the psychedelic logic. That would be very weird to a lot of people. Or write it from outside with a little ironic distance and humor. And neither was satisfying, and I tried them both. And then I realized I could toggle back and forth. And I got this. I was teaching a memoir in one of my classes. And I realized the real friction or edge of a great memoir, you know, James Baldwin or something like that, is the fact that he is sometimes in his 10-year-old self, and then sometimes he's his 40-year-old self looking back. 
and he's just going freely back and forth. And it's that rub that's really interesting. If you stay in the child consciousness the whole time, it kind of becomes unbearable after a while. It doesn't have any perspective. And and we crave for some perspective and we crave for some narrative. So I thought, well, I could do the same thing from both being inside this experience and being outside this experience. So whenever I thought I was going to lose the straight reader, the person who had never done this, I would just kind of break the fourth wall and talk to the audience and confess the challenge. Um, So there was a moment on this LSD journey where I had the incredibly common banal and profound insight that love is the most important thing in the universe. How do you write that in a convincing way? It's hopeless. So I stopped and there's a whole riff about platitudes. What is a platitude? It's a truth that's been drained of its emotional force. Yes, love is the most important principle in the universe, belongs on a Hallmark card, but it also happens to be true. And so by just kind of acknowledging the resistance and, and, and addressing my own embarrassment by having had that emotion, I found that that was the way I could do it. And once I found that voice and that freedom, I had a great time writing those scenes. Well, and the, I was dreading it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, it, I think it is successful. I think Thank it you. works really well. And, and it, it's an interesting experience reading it because I came in with all of my own preconceived notions about it. Like um, Everybody does. Right. And, and I felt disarmed of them very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. Not, un, not unlike the experience of doing these things. Yeah. No, and that's what I meant that, you know, to some extent they made me do it. And that much of this is a product of what I learned, you know, in having these trips. So it did have an influence on my writing. We'll see if it lasts. You know, as I said, every book is its own machine and it has its own rules. And I was a little saddened when I realized that, all right, now I'm an experienced writer. I'm a pro. I've been doing this for years. Why is it so hard to start another piece? And I realized, well, you're creating a new machine, a new algorithm, a new voice, and uh, it's not the same one. You can't use the same one it's seamlessly. Still, it's still hard for you? Yeah, especially beginnings, because so much work happens in the first page or two. I mean, you're setting expectations, you're teasing things. Yeah. You're, it's That's weird. Why, like, why, you know, the people who made this desk, you know, woodworkers, you know, they get really comfortable and it's not as complicated and they don't have a lot of anxiety about what they do. I mean, I've seen lots of craftsmen. Once I, they get I know the guy who built this table, he had a lot of anxiety he about did? it. Yeah. Oh. Well, it's kind of a weird table. <laughs> <laughs> it was my bad idea for a table. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I always imagined I would get to that point where it would be so fluid that you just can't stop me. Um, but no, it's still hard. What was it like to follow up Omnivore's Dilemma and like the the food era of your work. Like, I don't know, using your like uh, dots in space analogy, yeah. like I don't know what Omnivore's Dilemma is. It's like a, a new sun or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, but it was a clear trajectory, right? Yeah. It was a direction and it, and it flowed right out of Botany and Desire. And it was like, okay, now we're going to take on the whole food system. And that logically uh, was followed by In Defense of Food because I hadn't really dealt with nutrition, which- right. Duh. turns out to be the only thing people really care about in food. It's like, is it good for me or bad for me? So I, I decided I would, and that's an example of how talking to your audience, as I do many nights of the year, is very informative. It's like, oh, everyone's asking me this basic question that I didn't answer in this book. Maybe I should write about it. So I, I get a lot out of that conversation. But I felt risky. 
I mean, I felt like I had a comfortable niche here, and but I also felt like crowded. It was getting really crowded. You know, when I started writing about food, it was like me and Eric Schlosser, and everybody else was just writing about it as a consumer story. And now there are like dozens of really good food writers out there, and and I really like having a little more elbow room, you know, when I'm writing. And one of the amazing things about writing about psychedelics is like, where is everybody? <laughs> the whole time I was like, because when I was writing, even when I was writing Omnivore, I felt in a competitive, like, I got to get this out. I got to get the people really interested in food right now. Here, it's like, nobody's in this space. I've got it all to myself. Um, you know, there were books for psychonauts, right. um, but I wasn't writing that. So it, some days it made me nervous, but most of the time it was, it was like, this is great. But part of it, that makes sense to me. There's like crowding and there's more people coming to it. But then I I also imagine that like what happened with those books and what happened for you with those books is exceedingly rare. Yeah. You, you became a, a famous person. Yeah. I mean, I, and not just that. I mean, that happens to a fair number of writers, but that a movement grew yes. out of this. And I see that starting to happen with psychedelics. You know, we just had this ballot initiative in Denver, and I don't know, I don't know what that means. I, it's a little awkward journalistically. I mean, with food, I really didn't want to become a leader in any way. I, I wanted to preserve my ability to be a reporter, um, which is not the same as a leader. You know, as soon as you become an advocate, you're consigned to the op-ed pages, you know, very often. What's your relationship to that, like, motto of yours? Eat food, not too much, mostly plants? Yeah, that one. Oh, I, I stick to it. No, I I believe that you live it. My, oh, my relation to it? Well, yeah. I hope I come up with something better before I die. <laughs> yeah, but I was going to say, like, I feel like... Uh, yeah, no, that's, it'll that's be on first, my headstone. First, yeah, yeah, first paragraph of the obituary stuff. I'm afraid so, yeah. So that, you know, that, that eggs me on to see if I can beat it. And people have suggested the psychedelic equivalent. Take drugs, not too much, mostly psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, but anyway, there have been a lot of versions of that. You know, I, I feel like I caught a wave. I mean, it was happening. I knew it was happening when I was writing the book with food and that it was going to happen with or without me. And uh, so as journalists, what we should be able to do is like peer around one corner, be a little bit ahead of the culture. You don't want to be too far. Nobody knows what you're talking about. But... Yeah. I, mean, I had a mentor once in journalism, a publisher of a magazine that went out of business um, and was quite a visionary magazine, actually, in its time. But it doesn't pay to be too far ahead. And he said, you know, and as a journalist, you just want to be a short-term visionary. You don't want to be a long-term visionary because nobody will know what you're talking about. And I, that was good advice. So, Look, I don't know whether this is like long-term visionary or short-term visionary, but thinking about that that article about the fence... From 1989. The Woodchuck article. Yeah, 1988. What would you tell that person now if you had those ambitions to write in 2019, given the like landscape of journalism, which you're, you know, you're yeah. teaching at Berkeley and Harvard, you're talking to lots and lots of young journalists. What would you tell yourself to do? Well, when I read that book, there's things about it I like and there are things that make me wince. The things that are just kind of too literary, like I was trying too hard. You know, it was the first book. I wanted to show my elders that I could really write. And um, so I was like, cut that shit out. <laughs> you don't need that. All those, you know, kill your darlings kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's some darlings left in that book. So that would be one thing. Also, 
don't be afraid of the small subject because you can read the large and the small. And that book, in a way, is, you know, if you describe it to someone, it's incredibly modest. Here's a collection of essays of things that happened to me in my garden. But if you read it carefully, there's like a rethinking of the American relationship to the natural world or an attempt to rethink it. And that um, microcosms are everything in journalism, I think. Finding the right microcosm for the bigger story is uh, really important. Um, What else would I tell that person? Well, I would tell them, you know, quit that job now. Get to it. You could. I could have written another book. <laughs> Quit fucking around. I was. I was afraid to leave. I mean, I loved Harper's. I was there at a wonderful time. I was privileged to edit just amazing writers and learn from them. Uh, but you must be talking to young people who are incredibly yeah. anxious about yeah the state of this industry. And I guess I wonder what your answer to them is if they were also so fortunate as to find their question yeah. early in their careers. Like, how would you tell them to pursue that? Well, I'm careful not to over-encourage people so they'll make bad decisions. Like I had two or three students in my science journalism class at Harvard who were graduate students who bailed on their scientific careers to pursue writing, and it really gave me pause. I hope it works out. Um, But this career of a scientist has got its problems too, as I learned. So I think it's always been hard. I think making, you know, having a career as a writer, writing the stuff you want to write, not being a hack, there never been a lot of slots there. And um, but I just think yes, media is falling apart in some ways. But you know, storytelling goes on. There's now you know people are telling stories on podcasts, and they that needs writing too. And there's a huge amount of television being produced, and that needs writing too. And that storytelling won't go away, and the ability to write well will always be needed. And uh, so I don't warn people off of journalism by any means. Um, I think it's important to understand that the demand for what we do has never been greater, even as the business model has collapsed. And it's not for writers to figure out the business model. Other people will figure it out. But long-form narrative journalism has never been, you know, a very common or popular product in some ways, and that it's always been a struggle. But the satisfactions are, are great enough that looking at the environment and, and saying, oh, this is a bad career. I don't think that's right. I think if it's your passion, you got to do it. Michael, thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you, Max. It was great fun. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Louisa Garbowit. Thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring the show, and also Pit Writers. And thanks most of all to Michael Pollan. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. 
You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.